Our time in the Word of God will be largely centered around John chapter 1. And so I'd implore you to grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. That may make you nervous, 17 verses. Have no fear, as you reach the narrative sections of John, our speed will pick up a little bit. Um, There's no accident in that. Narrative teaching is very different than the prologue uh, and also very different than the book of Philippians. And so the speed and the size of passages will become larger as we move forward. John chapter 1. It is an astounding thing to realize that God sent Messiah into the world. It is an astounding thing, not because it was complicated and not because there were so many expectations. It is an astounding thing mainly because we didn't even want him in this form. We didn't desire Messiah to come and offer this kind of salvation. When John the Baptist spoke to the people that were surrounding him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who, and the most important aspect, takes away the sin of the world. We talked a lot about that last time and referring to the fact that it is two-pronged. One is in salvation towards those whom God is saving. The other is the removal of sin by the destruction of the wicked. Both will achieve the same singular outcome, This world will one day be without sin. Does that not delight your heart? How many sufferings of our lives are brought about by the sin of our own hands or the sin of another's? The answer is all of it. The reason that the Christian patiently endures suffering is because we know that suffering is part of bringing about the end of sin. We know that when we enter certain aspects of suffering, it can so easily fill our vision. And yet, there in the midst of our suffering, we see the promises of God extended in ways that we could have never perceived otherwise. The saints of God in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the times before Messiah, wanted for the salvation of God in a very limited format. Now, they thought it was far-reaching to want for a Savior, to want for a Messiah that would bring them health, prosperity, and the following of God here in this life. They thought that that would be accomplished. It's easy to say a political leader, but they didn't think of politics the same way, way we do. A national leader. And how simple are humans to think the same thing, even in our supposedly advanced modern world, to place all of our hopes and all of our dreams onto specific national leaders. This is foolishness. No hope for the Christian is to be found in any national leader ever. Our hope is to be centered on Christ and none other, no matter what sufferings come to us from anywhere, national, local, or personal. The church learns this in times of difficulty. It forgets it in times of ease. And the people of God have been going through a great amount of difficulty before the onset of Messiah, before the coming of Jesus the Christ. The people of God were frustrated On a whole, the people of God were confused. For hundreds and hundreds of years, since the dawn of the call of Moses in the 15th century B.C., all the way down to the time of Malachi in the 5th century B.C., for 1,100 years, God had been sending his prophets and speaking directly to his people. No longer. No longer. 400 years more years of silence. Most people don't realize that pattern. 
Most people don't realize how long 400 years is. Most people don't realize that that happened twice in Israel's history, one of which is covered by a single paragraph while they were in Egypt. God was speaking to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to Joseph. And Joseph brought everyone down to Egypt. And then for 400 years, silence and suffering. Silence and suffering. God did not speak to his people. In that time, the silence was not matched by the presence of scriptures. They had no prophet and they had no scriptures. During the second 400 years that came after the close of the Old Testament, the calling of Malachi, the end of his career as a prophet of God, God sent no more prophets, and for 450 years, silence. But now with the Scriptures. And so it was a decidedly different silence, a decidedly different experience. My friends, we sit in another time of silence from God. Yet here, with not just the Hebrew Scriptures, but also the Greek ones, the Old Testament and the New And it is why we spend our time in them, so that we may understand what God has spoken. Many Christians will use passages like the one we're going to see today and talk about it as the form of God is speaking to us today. God is speaking to us today, but he's speaking to us from the past. That's an important distinction. You sitting alone with your Bible and gaining a feeling about what the passage means for you is not God speaking. God has spoken, and it's here in black and white. He has preserved his word, and it is up to us to stay faithful to what he has said, not to apply it in ways that are counterintuitive. And so I want you to see some of this because it's one of the more marvelous passages that gets passed over because it sits between two really well-known passages. But don't miss this. And so let's plow into it today because it is, it is a lot of stuff. John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. Stand in honor of God and his word, if you will, please, as we read this marvelous passage. The calling of the first disciples. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned, saw them following, and said to them, What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about four o'clock, the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speaking and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. And he said to him, we have found him of whom the Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Apparently so. Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite, a man of Israel indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him and said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to You all, that's plural. You all will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father, we 
we are delighted to see these words. We thank you that you inspired them. We pray your spirit illumine our minds and our hearts that we may both know, understand, love, and submit to them. These are great miracles we pray for. And we thank you, Father, for your promise to bring wisdom to those who ask, and not only to give pieces of wisdom, but to give liberally when asked in faith. And so we pray for that very thing. Give us wise eyes as we see your passages of Scripture this morning. In your Son's name, amen. You may be seated. Is there ever a more delightful sentence that anyone's ever exclaimed than, we have found the Messiah? Christian, in your life, is there ever a time that you can look back and say, you know, one of the most important transitions in my life was that I found a good deal at the store or something? No, it is, I have found Christ. Yet upon retroflex, do we not learn that it is actually not us who began the seeking process? I find it fascinating the way that John writes about the calling of these first disciples because they each think that they have discovered something tremendous. They each think that they began this. Finally, after looking at Moses and all the prophets, we finally identified the Messiah. We got it. I'm going to go tell my brother. I'm going to go tell my friend, this one who I know very well. only to find out that when they were alone before they heard anything of Christ, that Christ had been seeing and intending towards them. My friends, the Christian experience is the same. In our timeline, we see that the gospel message has come to us and we have believed and come to faith upon Christ. We place our faith in him and that's where our eyes start recording But the reality is that as we learn who Christ is, as we learn what he has done, that he has actually intended to save us before he created the world. That means that before Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 expresses its marvelous truths, Christ thought of you. Not because of some value or good thing that you would promise to do, but because he is a gracious God and because he is a marvelous Savior and because he is powerful to save people like you and people like me. That is a tremendous thing to learn as a Christian. It sets us free from the concern that it is based on our skill or based on our oratory that we save those that we are delivering the gospel to. No, Christ will not lose a single sheep that he has called. He has called us only to faithfulness, my friends. He has not called us to concern and worry about bringing his kingdom into this world. He will bring his kingdom into this world. And you, my friends, are part of it because the kingdom of God is in the midst of his people. And this is where the Gospel of John first introduces this idea. It first introduces this idea that those who follow Christ do so because Christ is worthy of being followed and Christ has brought about those who will follow. Christ's authority to rename his followers, Christ's authority to call his followers, to see them, to invade their privacy while they're underneath a fig tree studying the law of God, which is what we will see. Because he is the God of this world. Imagine the surprise of these disciples to learn that the God of this world, the Son of God himself, is walking around as one of us. Has never happened before. Not like this. There had been places where the second person of the Trinity, God the Son himself, had appeared as a man throughout the Old Testament scriptures. We see that in several places. But never to be born as one of us. We know his Father. We know his house. Nazareth is a town very similar in size to deposit, believe it or not. A little less than 2,000 people. Everyone knows everyone. 
That means in order to identify him exactly, all they had to say was Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. It's the only one. Ralph isn't here today, so I can pick on him. Ralph of Deposit, son of Ralph. But you guys all know who I'm talking about. And that's exactly what they're saying. And they're expressing this thing. That's just a hamlet off to the side. What great thing can come from this? Well, it's the same answer. What good thing can come from a manger? Or stable? Or a peasant girl? What good thing can come out of Bethlehem? Or Israel? Or mankind? The surprise of the first disciples is shared by the rulers in Jerusalem, the Pharisees, who wondered why it is Christ would lower himself later on in the text to eat dinner with sinners and tax collectors, but never wondered why he had to lower himself to eat with them. Because they saw themselves as better. In reality, Christ will bring something in his ministry that surprises everybody. Let's look into it. Verse 35, let's start. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this. This is the day after last week's passage. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them. Now, a word for just a moment on the attitude of John the Baptist. It is worth emulation. And I want to say this to pastors. I want to say this to leaders. Fathers, I want to say it to you. When you introduce those in your charge to Christ and you see them develop a love for Christ more than a love for you, that is a cause for rejoicing. It is not a cause for us to say, I want you to respect me. And then through me to Christ. It is one of the reasons why when we celebrate communion, I do not hand it to you. I think it is absolutely important for us to realize that we come to Christ and he is our high priest. Not a pastor, not our fathers, not another. None is good enough for this. It is only Christ that does this. And so the attitude of John the Baptist is worthy of emulation here. Imagine this. Two of the people that he has been training unto baptism... Two of the people that have been hearing his preaching about repentance and faith, two of those who have been hearing about his expression that there is one coming whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, we're going to stand here and wait and look for him. And then to realize that as soon as they hear who you're talking about, that they leave you to follow him, it is a joyous day. Even if it means you are lonely. And so I want you to see that in passing. The two disciples heard the testimony of John and they followed Jesus. For those of you reading the Gospel of John, that's all of us in here, John is intending for us to learn something from them. When you hear the identity of who Jesus of Nazareth is, follow him. It is the very reason he's writing this entire Gospel. It is so that we may be brought to that same reality in our own lives. That when you hear of who Jesus of Nazareth is, you may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you too may have life in his name. Here is the story of the first two disciples doing that. Was it wrong for them to follow John the Baptist? No. But they knew that he was not the prophet. They knew that he was not Elijah. They knew that he was not the promised one to come into the world. And instead he turns the whole thing around and points to Jesus and says, that's the one who is to come into the world. That's the one who's going to take away the sins of the world. We're so used to the story that we don't realize how significant of a claim that is when you're standing around on a normal Tuesday in the desert. For someone to point at another person that looks just like you, was born down the street, to look at him and say, that's the one who's going to remove the sins out of the entire world. Something the flood 
couldn't do. Do you realize that? Something that's separating us from the Garden of Eden couldn't do. Something death can't do. Something no other force can do anywhere in all of the universe. This man who was born over there, who lives in that little house, who's standing here in the desert by a tiny river that's only 15 to 20 feet wide, here we have the testimony of a man dressed in camel's hair with a leather belt that stinks of locusts and honey, saying, that's the guy. And John expects you to take it serious. And let me tell you, there are seminaries filled with people who don't. There are pulpits filled with people who do not take that serious. And there are pews absolutely chalked to the rim with people that do not take that claim serious. My friends, he is taking away the sin of the world. Every one of them. Some by salvation and forgiveness, others by fire and wrath. Do you know how significant of a claim it is to say that's the one who's going to do it? That he's the one worthy to open the scroll? That he's the one who's going to accomplish it and do away with it? My friends, choose sin or him because sin will be destroyed along with those who serve it and he will preserve those who serve him. Blessings and cursings, my friends, blessings and cursings, as has always been the message of the word of God. And the two disciples, upon hearing this, turn and quickly follow Christ. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? Basically, what do you want? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? It's a term of honor. He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about four o'clock in the afternoon, the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus, again, every time John talks like this, he's calling the reader to emulate the same. If you have heard John's speech, you've heard his witness, follow Jesus. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. How fortuitous. I mean, what a coincidence that is, isn't it? Complete coincidence. The fact that the one who would become the leader of the disciples of Christ, his brother happens to be present on the day that John the Baptist identified Jesus. Just happenstance. We'll say that in passing, right? No. He followed Jesus. It was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, probably some of the most astounding words, we have found the Messiah. This is not the first time that sentence has been uttered in history. Many people before Jesus and after Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Christ himself warned of this in the Olivet Discourse at the end of Matthew, where he says, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, or look, there is the Christ. Don't believe them. Why? Because if you place your trust in them, you will die. I mean, the stakes can't be higher. And so this is why John is building up this case. This is the person who you should trust in. This is the one whom you will live by. And look at the calls of these people. Look at his authority. Andrew brought Simon Peter to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. This is the first time they've ever met. You are Simon, the son of John. Now I'm going to change your name. You will be called, in Aramaic, Cephas. In Greek, Peter. It means rock. Both of them, they're the same word. And so for the rest of the time, he is not called necessarily Cephas, but is expressing the reality that you, Simon, are now Simon Peter, Simon the Rock. He doesn't express why. The writer of the book of John does not express why. He just states it. Because the focus is not Peter. 
Even when Matthew expresses this same interaction later on, it is not because the focus is Peter. This is something that the Catholic Church got very wrong. It is the focus is Christ from beginning to end, the salvation that has come through him and what he is accomplishing, who he is, and what he's going to do. And so the focus maintains on Jesus doing the actions here. After Simon Peter comes to Jesus, Jesus looked at him and renamed him based on a role that he would be giving to him. And so now we have Andrew, Peter, and another unnamed disciple that used to follow John the Baptist. Nobody knows who that is. There's a lot of conjecture, and they're all worthless and guesses, so I'm not including them. Verse 43. This is where we really get into the meat of what John's after. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip. Watch this pattern. And he said to him, follow me. And we don't know anything about Philip. We don't know if Philip was coming up and saying, you know, I really want to follow Jesus. We don't know who he was following, what he was doing. He could have been tanning leather by the side of the road. He could have been doing all sorts of things. As far as for reading the Gospel of John, it doesn't matter. It matters that Jesus, on his way to Galilee, finds Philip. That's all you're supposed to know at this point. Philip was from Bethsaida, the same city that Andrew and Peter were from. Philip found Nathanael. And Nathanael said to him, excuse me, and Philip said to Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. He is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then we'll get into Nathanael's response. What is this pattern here? Jesus comes up and finds Philip. We don't know anything about Philip, but we do know one thing. He comes from the same city that Peter and Andrew come from. And when Jesus finds Philip and says, follow me, Philip immediately turns around and goes, finds Nathanael and says, hey, we found the one that's worthy of following. You need to come see him. And it's not just using the terms Messiah. Now we expand out. And this is exactly what John is bringing to our attention here. The prophet that Moses promised is the same as the Messiah, is the same as the Son of God, is the same as the Son of Man, is the same as the Word of God, is the same as God himself. You can see the comparisons that he's making. Each of these equals the same person. The prophet that was to come in the world that Moses had prophesied of, there will be a prophet that comes after me and the word of the Lord will be on his lips and in his mouth. The Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the King of Israel. How many things can we say about this man? What an overwhelming abundance of ways to refer to him. And yet the one thing that people did not expect was the humble side of him. When Philip goes to Nathaniel, he doesn't say, hey, we found the Son of God. The Messiah. No. He says, we found the one that Moses prophesied about. He lives in this little hamlet over here. His dad's name is Joseph. He doesn't give him all the details. The Lamb of God. He doesn't give him, he's going to take away the sins of the world. He doesn't give any of that. He just says, this is Jesus of Nazareth. He's the son of Joseph. Moses prophesied about him. Come and see him. And so you can understand Nathaniel's hesitancy. What does he say? If you found the one, let me elaborate on his, on his expression of it. If you found the one that Moses prophesied about, he's not going to be from Nazareth. If you found who will most certainly be claimed to be Messiah, why would he not be from Jerusalem? Wouldn't he be of the priestly class? Wouldn't he be of some known birth? Wouldn't he be at least in the, in the lineage of David? One would think that he would have to come from Bethlehem, right? Can anything come 
that is good out of Nazareth. Philip said to him, why don't you come and see? I think that's one of those great expressions in here because both Andrew says it to Peter, come and you will see, back in verse 39, and here Philip says it to Nathaniel, the same thing, same words, come and see. This is exactly what John is telling his readers. Come, read, and see. This is Jesus of Nazareth. And by the end of this book, by the end of the Gospel of John, he will make this case time and time and time again. He is the one worthy of all worship. He is the one worthy of all trust. Because in him dwells life, and that such life dwells in no other. So Nathaniel says this, or excuse me, Philip says this to Nathaniel, come and see. And so Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said to him, and this is perhaps one of my favorite little turns. And most people don't know what to do with this because it's such a bizarre terminology. Jesus calls out to Nathaniel as he sees him approaching from far away and calls out to him and says, Behold, an Israelite, very rare term, in whom there is no deceit. Now put yourself in Nathaniel's shoes for just a second. That's a strange thing for somebody to say to somebody first time they meet him. What if somebody comes up to you, never met you before, and that's how they introduce themselves from far away while you're still out of, uh, you know, hands reach, haven't even shook hands yet. They just call out and say, that's a person with no deceit. And Nathaniel doesn't disagree with them. He just goes up and says, how do you know me? Now, be honest. How many of you have read this passage before and go, I have no idea what is going on here. I feel like I'm missing a puzzle piece. Yes, we are. And so let me give you the puzzle piece because it's one of those things that many people stumble over. And so in order to get the puzzle piece, you have to go back to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, chapter 27, expresses this reality. Who is the person that bore the name Israel for the first time? Jacob. Jacob. Why was Jacob named that way? He was a deceiver. It's what he did. He took his birthright through deception. In fact, this is exactly what Genesis 27 connects him to doing. It is through deceiving that he has done this. His name being Israel, being the first Israelite, founded on the principle of deception. It is how he got his birthright. It is how he got the blessing of Isaac. It is why God himself does not call himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Deception. Jacob stole the birthright. And God honored that. Why? Because before they were born, between Esau and Jacob, God as it says in the book of Romans, loved Jacob and hated Esau. That is a hard pill to swallow for some. It is to say, I thought God was a God of love. No, my friends. The surprising part of that is to say that God loved Jacob. That's the most surprising thing of all because Jacob was a scoundrel. Jacob wouldn't even love one of his wives, because she didn't please him to the eyes. What a horrific thing. And Jacob's greater grandson, Jesus, sets out to love the unlovely bride, us, to perfect her, to sanctify her, to justify her, and to glorify her. The picture here is, behold, a Jacobite, an Israelite in whom there isn't deceit. Nathaniel, you're not following the ways of your father. You're seeking something more. Now, Nathaniel answers back in a way that might be confusing to us at first. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? 
Basically, I've been working on that my whole life. How in the world did you know me about that? And so Jesus responds with something that's even more confusing. And he says, before Philip called you, before you ever heard my name, before any of these things occurred to your perspective, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, we are separated by time and space from this culture quite significantly. What things do you study or do under a fig tree? At their time, study of the law of God during a time of prosperity took place under a fig tree. It was expressed as a time of great rejoicing because God was providing. And for those of you who have fruit trees, you know that there's nothing more enjoyable than the provision of the fruit that grows on a tree. And so that is where, during a time of prosperity in someone's lives, they would be thankful to God and they would sit under a tree that was producing fruit, thanking God for these things. And so the claim that Jesus is making is not just to know that he was sitting under a fig tree, it is to know what he was praying because he is the one to whom he was praying. And he says, before Philip arrived... When you were sitting under the fig tree by yourself and nobody knew you were there, I saw you. I saw you here in a different town, in a different place. It's not just that I have knowledge of everything. Nathaniel, I knew what you were praying. I knew what you were doing. And it is not what your father Jacob did. Nathaniel is astonished. He answered him and says, Rabbi, you are, now this is, in, this is the first time, the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answers back to him and says, did that surprise you? Because I said I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You're going to see much greater things than these. And then he gives us a little story, and I want to hold off before we get to it. Do you realize that before you came to Christ, Christ was calling you and bringing you to life? I don't know about you, but there's times where I've looked back in my life and wondered how it would have gone differently if I hadn't come to Christ. The answer is, there is no hypothetical There is no contingency. It is Christ who intended to save me before my parents knew each other. It wasn't going to fail. No matter which twists and turns it took, it was not happenstance that I came to Christ. It was His design. It was what He was doing. Not because of any promise I had. Not because of any good that I could do. But because He is gracious. And I never would have placed any trust in him whatsoever. I know my sinfulness. I never would have put any trust in him unless he woke me up first, brought me to life, gave me eyes to see and ears to hear the gospel that was given once for all time. And what other can a regenerated heart do but trust in the one bringing them to life? Jesus says, you're going to see much greater things than these. I'm not just the God who answers these prayers and to whom thanksgiving comes. He gives them a little picture. Verse 51. He said to, let's get this straight, Nathaniel. He said to him, truly, truly, I say to you all. Plural you, something that unfortunately our language does not have except in the South. So I'm going to translate it that way. Truly, truly, I say to y'all, y'all will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, if your mind just exploded, there's a reason. It's because you spent time in the Old Testament. What stories, there's two of them that should sit and rise straight up to your consciousness. Name the first one. Jacob's ladder. 
believe it or not, occurs the very next chapter after he is called a deceitful person in whom there's lots of guile and through which he got the blessing of the Lord. What's the other one? The Son of Man. Where does that come from? That's the harder one. Nope. Say again. Daniel. Who said that? Very good. Daniel chapter 7. We're going to go to both. First Genesis 28. Please turn there. You don't get really that many Bible drills in church, so I figured we'd make option to it. Genesis 28. I want you to see this because it's pretty much one of the more fascinating aspects of what John is doing. He is assuming that you know the book of Genesis and the book of Daniel. Christian, you must know the Old Testament to make any sense of the new. Those who are trying to separate us out from the Hebrew Scriptures are grave in their errors. You must have the Old Testament as the backdrop, lest the New Testament make no sense whatsoever. You do not start in the New. You start with God who created the heavens and the earth. And you build off of that. Okay? This is the same way John is speaking to us. By the way, if you want the passage in Genesis 27 that's being referred to before, it's 27 verse 35, you can see that, where Jacob came deceitfully and took away the blessing. This is the next story after that. After Jacob was sent to Laban, and Esau goes and marries an Ishmaelite, we have chapter 28, and I want to start in verse 10. And I want you to see this because it should sit high in your mind when you hear this story about Jesus. Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran, And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now that that does not sound overly comfy. Um, When I was a kid, I always just stopped in that story at that moment and goes, what's the point? Never mind, doesn't matter. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. On the earth. On top of it, reaching into heaven, behold, the angel of gods were ascending and descending on it. Behold, the Lord stood above it. And listen to what the Lord says in this picture. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring, singular, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Here, one of the first expressions of salvation of the Gentiles in the Old Testament. Behold, verse 15, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That is a remarkable promise. And it is one that sits on every single person that belongs to the Lord. He has promised eternity to us, which means he will never leave us or forsake us. That sounds familiar, even to the end of the age. Jacob woke from his sleep and said, what? Surely the Lord is in this place. Why? Because that is where the angels from heaven are ascending and descending, and the Lord's word is spoken. And he was afraid, excuse me, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this, the gate of heaven. Now, keep with me. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar, poured oil on the top of it. Yes, that's extreme Old Testament baptism and commemoration. Verse 19, he called the name of that place Bethel. Who knows what that means? Bethel, the house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way, that I will go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again. Hold on a second. Bread to eat and clothing to wear. Does that sound familiar to the wanderings of the people of Israel 400 years later? Where God provided them bread in the wilderness and shoes that wouldn't wear out and clothing that they wouldn't have to mend? Hmm. 
Just as a side note, if you wanted to do a study this week. Verse 21, So that I come again to my Father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. In the ancient Near East, if you were going to give a full tenth to somebody, it was recognizing that they are both your civil authority and your theological authority. Go back to John 1. Keep your finger here. Go back to John 1 and see this. What is it that Nathanael recognized Jesus as in verse 49? Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you and Nathanael answered, and look at this theological authority and civil authority. Rabbi, you are the son of God and you are the king of Israel. And Jesus takes that recognition. He takes that recognition and connects it instantaneously to the story of Jacob realizing where God was in the world and they didn't know it. This is exactly what Jacob experienced. The Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. Nathaniel is realizing the same thing. The Lord is in you, and I didn't know it. The Lord is in Nazareth, and I didn't know it. All these years, all these years, if you saw me under the fig tree that time, you've seen me there before. And everywhere else I go, Who can know these things but the Lord who is in this place? And Jesus responds to him in language he fully understands and says, you're going to see, all of you will see the angels of God ascending and descending, not in this place, not just on the earth, not just in Bethel, not just on the temple, but on me. What is he calling himself? I am the house of God. I am the Lord walking in your midst. I am the place where heaven and earth touch. That used to be the temple. It is no accident that refers to his body as the temple of God. It is no accident, my friends, Christians, that he calls us the temple of the Holy Spirit. We do not come into the temple of the Holy Spirit. We as a collection are the temple of the Holy Spirit. With all of our faults, with all of the sin that dwells in our members, we are the place where heaven touches earth too. Not because of something good we have done, but because of the salvation of Christ in our place. He says, you will see much greater things than these. And he speaks to all of them and says that you will see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, the story of Daniel 7 is phenomenal. I will give you homework tonight. You need to read Daniel 7 and see the prophecies of the Son of Man. It is perhaps one of the most astounding prophecies in the Old Testament. It confused the socks off of people because it was talking about one who would come into the world that was called the Son of Man who would be distinctly human and yet also very divine. And they didn't know what in the world to do with that prophecy because how is it that anyone could call themselves both man and God? And here Jesus not only refers to himself as this, it is his favorite title about himself. And so if you want to understand what Jesus is teaching others about himself, you need to know Daniel chapter 7, the prophecy of the Son of Man, because it is astounding. The reality that 600 years before Christ is walking around in Galilee, that a prophecy like that exists and what things will be committed to him. That is your homework this week. If you already turned there, stop trying to do your homework in class. Stay with me in John 1. Realize where this story is going. We are only at the end of chapter 1. And John is bringing his readers to a place where they will see Jesus high and lifted up. They will see who he is. They will interact with skeptics and miracles 
stories and teachings and Old Testament allusions, themes, motifs, so many aspects about who Jesus is because if you get that wrong, it doesn't matter what else you get right. If you are a skillful liver, meaning a wise person, and you missed Christ, your life will be made worthless. I cannot overemphasize the importance of knowing Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and believing on his name for salvation. It is impossible to overstate the ramifications. If you are within the sound of my voice and you have not come to salvation, I implore you, do not miss the witness of Scripture. Do not miss the imploring of those who have been saved by Christ. If you are curious about Christ, it is because he is chasing you down. And he happens to just be using us this morning to bring that about. It is not our skill. It is the message of the cross. And if you come to faith in Christ, realize that the grace of Christ was intended to you before the galaxies spun in their orbits. But do not come to Christ simply of that value. Come to Christ because he is worthy of this. Come to Christ because he is an awesome God, a powerful Savior, and a delightful King. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are brought again to our knees in front of your word. What is seemingly a small story has an unplumbable depth. Such is the nature of your wisdom. We are grateful for your word. We are grateful for its challenge and its delights. We pray, Father, you teach us to love every aspect of it that we love one another fiercely as we are called to do. Father, teach us to behave as we ought. Teach us to trust as we ought. Teach us to delight as we ought. May your word brighten the path on which we walk. May we lean on one another because we need it so much. We thank you, Father, for these first disciples and the examples they are to all of us upon hearing the testimony regarding your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, we rise up and follow him. Give us strength should the days grow dark. Give us faithfulness should they grow easy. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.